Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Wing and a Prayer. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in tech, F1, Matthew Summerfield, Assistant Technical Director at Motorsport.com, the man with the plan from techie Stan and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summer's F1. How you doing today? summers i'm doing really well thanks matt but it's been far too long again we just haven't managed to catch up have we no we haven't and there are reasons for that and they are good and happy reasons for the most part but before we go any further i need to remind everybody at home we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves we aim to bring you a race review before your monday morning commute we might be wrong but we're first and now, shall we get to, uh, I don't know, maybe we should get to a little tiny bit of news. And there's a lot to talk about today, even though all the really big news for the race will be happening tomorrow, as is almost always the case. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. I have to say, for us at least, at the top has to be the fact that the new race in Vietnam, which is going to be a street circuit, and I know not everyone is a fan of that, has begun construction. Yeah, and to be honest, Matt, I've never really been a big fan of street circuits myself, to be fair. Um, But this layout does look fairly decent. Um, It does remind me of Baku, and we've clearly had some decent races in Baku. Uh, But obviously the proof will be in the pudding, really, and and hopefully we'll see the kind of racing that... uh, as we've seen at the past in the past at Baku. Yeah, well, I know Spanners, too, is not a big fan of street circuits, and he would argue that the main excitement about Baku, and I think there's most people who, who tend to denigrate them, will be simply that it will cause cars to crash and the sorts of chaos and mayhem that wind up unexpectedly making races exciting at the end because you just, you can't, it's more of a lottery, really. 
Yeah, I mean, that tends to be the case, doesn't it, with street circuits, that you do tend to get a lot of uh, mishaps for the drivers, and that obviously causes some of that action. But obviously, predominantly, Baku has been quite good in terms of the overtaking as well because of that long uh, back straight. So hopefully with a a one and a half kilometre straight that they've got on this new Vietnam circuit, hopefully that will provide some action as well. Um, It does, though, look like there's a lot of uh, high throttle moments on this particular track. So um, trying to keep the racing close, we might have to wait for the 2021 regulations for that, really. Yeah, and the walls, the close walls, do tend to increase the effect of the dirty air more than a bit, if I'm not mistaken. But I would also ask you, um, obviously we're not going to see this circuit this year, but based on what we just saw at Baku, is this potentially also a tire problem for certain teams' long straights Or do you think the super twisty last sector will make up enough of that so they can get proper energy into their tires? Well, I suppose that really depends on which way Pirelli decide to go next season. Um, Certainly, they've come up for some um, kind of conversations with the teams in the early part of this year because of their choices this year with with the tires and their operating temperatures and and so on and so forth. Um, But... I think predominantly we might see that Pirelli make some changes for, for next year to cover that off. Um, however, um, I do think that it is a problem for them, especially with the way that they try to obviously control things from a temperature point of view for degradation uh, purposes. So, yeah, it, it is always going to cause them issues. Um, but obviously the more and more racing that we see at a particular circuit, as we know, the, the tracks get rubbered in, then you should start to see um, a, a bit more performance given from the tyres. So hopefully um, we shouldn't see too many problems next season because I hope that Pirelli will, will get on top of some of the issues they've had this year. Good. And we'll, we'll talk about those issues later. But uh, something else that came up, and I'd be very curious to get your input on, is um, there was a penalty in Azerbaijan for uh, Pierre Gasly. He missed the Weybridge. And, and as we had it explained by Christian Horner, he was told to push into the pits because they were going to practice a la Mercedes, a double stack pit stop with Verstappen. And he simply missed his name on the board. Now, having been in a karting race where I spent most of the race with my visor up because I missed the very obvious put your visor down noob on the on the on the ginormous board by the start finish line. I, I can I feel some sympathy for him having had that pressure put on him by the team. But Horner argues that in light of that, all Friday penalties should be reassessed in terms of their effect on the race. And I was curious if you had an opinion on that or not. Okay, well, I think there's there's a twofold part to this, realistically. The, the first part is the fact that the drivers have a huge amount of things to do, especially as they're coming in uh, to the pit lane because they're having to reconfigure the car ready for a pit stop um, and obviously for, for the crew to accept the car. But on top of that, obviously... Um, we've got a situation where there's some unintended consequences to all of the regulations. And it's only when those unintended consequences trip somebody up that we start to hear somebody say, oh, perhaps we should make a change to the regulations. And it does seem more that this is a case of favouring Red Bull uh, because of that. You know, they're they're trying to get out of something um, by having trying to get something changed. Um, So for me, um, the regulations are there. They know what they are. Uh, and obviously they should abide by them. But there are th- these instances where I do think that uh, there should be some more common sense applied um, because of the, the nature of what the drivers are having to do. Yeah, so basically uh, just because Red Bull always cries wolf doesn't mean they're not occasionally broken clock about it. 
Yeah, um, that's, that's basically it. And I did want to ask, you know, one more thing that this did confuse me a little bit, and, and I was going to go look up the regs, but I didn't. Um, it's a free practice on Friday. So how is, because it's free, I can run any equipment I want. So how is missing a Weybridge put you at the back of the grid? Why, why can't I go out there and run an underweight car just to see what it does if that's part of what I'm trying to learn in free practice? Well, I, I do understand that, and I would be on side with you in, in that respect, but the rules obviously stipulate certain things about what the procedures are for, for each session. And if this is the case whereby we do have that set of, sets of rules in place, then obviously the teams must still abide by them, even if it's irrespective of what they're actually currently doing out there on the track. So, yeah, it, it's it's one of those sort of strange scenarios that, that crops up once in a while in Formula One, isn't it, where an old regulation that doesn't quite fit the criteria right now kind of trips up what's what's currently happening out there on the circuit. Fair enough. So it's, it's procedural and probably something that should be looked at in terms of its uh, effect. Because as long as it's not affecting safety then maybe the procedures should be updated to reflect how things currently are. I'm, I, I love that answer. And uh, so let's get to something that's even nearer and dearer to your heart, which is that we are hearing now that the official regulations for 2021 have been mooted to be published in October, which isn't the December that was originally talked about, but also not the June that was the original requirement, and it can only have been done so, done so through agreement, uh, unanimous agreement by all the teams. What are you hearing about that, and and what do you think about that? Is this really going to make that much of a difference? Um, well, I think we've talked about this in the past in terms of the development cycle of the new regulations and how that impact, impacts the sort of the, the richer teams on the grid and also the smaller teams. And obviously, if we are to be thinking of bringing in a budget cap for 2021 as well, we must also consider that anybody that spends a huge amount on the lead up to a set of regulations will clearly have a lasting impact in terms of the way in which they get they go through that particular set of regulations. Sort of the effect that we saw from Mercedes, they spent a huge amount going into the hybrid regulations and obviously they've won a massive amount of performance at the start that was very difficult for everybody to claw back uh, throughout the, the preceding years. So I think we're in a situation where it's very difficult for anybody to, to try to comprehend when is best to, to set these regulations and, and bring them out. Uh, obviously, there has to be a date. June was the initial one. And I think it was Christian Horner who said that they, it would be nice to bring them out in December, um, just to obviously try to stop the bigger teams from spending a, a quite considerable amount of money. Um, and obviously, they've decided to go somewhere in the middle there. And for me, I don't think you're really going to stop the bigger teams having an advantage in, in either respect until you've got a budget cap in place and then you might be able to see a bit more of a level playing field and then it comes down to resources and all sorts of things so for me the 2021 regulations are the first step on a very long ladder in order to try to bring the richer teams in play to the smaller teams and um it's it's always going to be difficult there's no real easy answer to, to what the FIA and Formula One management are trying to do. No, it's always a balancing of interest. But let me ask you then, in terms of the previous era, in terms of this era, 
how many years given Mercedes spend? Because it must be that Braun convinced them to spend the money up front to guarantee them the marketing that they wanted. And he was not wrong about that. Um, given that, how many years was it before we saw uh, what began to approach power unit parity? I mean, as 2014, 15, would 16 or 17, are we talking three or four years? And, and is that historically about what we've normally seen with big regulation changes? Yeah, well, I think it's a twofold um, thing once again here because we didn't only have a change to the the um, power unit regulations, although that was a massive difference from the old V8 era. We also had a massive change in terms of the aerodynamic regulations at that point in time as well. And it's the first time that Formula One has really done an over-encapsulating sort of regulation change. And I think that's what it was imperative that they avoided that circumstance for 2021. I know a lot of people don't like the power units that we currently have, but I think it was it's a necessary evil to continue down that route in order that you kind of bring the um, aero, reg- aero regulations to a point where it makes it easier for, for everybody to come in line with one another. Um, just returning to your question, I, I think, as you say, Ross Braun did convince Mercedes to spend a huge amount of money on, on 2014 that project um but they came into it thinking that they could actually recoup a lot of that money not only from a uh, commercial point of view but also from being able to supply other teams with their power unit as well so it wasn't really a a big ask of, of ross to be able to get mercedes on board i don't think um and in terms of getting sort of parity i think sort of mid 2016 Early 2017 was when we really started to see the power units come in line with one another in terms of Mercedes and Ferrari. And clearly the other two are still a a little bit adrift from that. Right. And would you think then uh, for aerodynamic regulations, it would be around that same period of time? Convergence is the thing, you see. Um, uh, The problem with the aerodynamic regulations is, is that you're always going to have two ends of the spectrum, something that we've seen very... Uh, much so in this set of regulations for 2019 with the front wing designs. You know, you've got one end of the spectrum with Ferrari, well, the Italian teams, let's call them the the teams that sat around having an espresso design in their front wings. Um, the, the Italian teams are on one end of the spectrum, and then we've got the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull on the other end of the spectrum. And for 2021, we could have that very, very same sort of thing. And it's the same thing that we keep hearing about with wheelbase and rake you know everybody has their own concepts and philosophies and i I don't think you're going to see a difference with that in 2021 because i I don't want to see a difference otherwise we might as well go spec racing at the end of the day yeah no the difference is good but uh, assuming that the new aerodynamic uh, aero regulations will have winners and losers the question is as a fan what should i realistically expect if my team is on the wrong side of that line we know from the last big changes that were both aero and power that it was about two and a half years to make up the difference in research and spending Mercedes did up front. We're coming up to another big change where the teams with the money could invest rather a lot of resource in it. So if that happens and there's a clear winner and clear loser, what do we think we're stuck with? Is it one season? Is it two seasons? That's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. And Uh, I get there's not a good answer to it, but I'm just curious as to your thoughts. I think we're sort of somewhere around at least two years um, because you'll have a a set parameter of development for your own uh, design concept 
And to move away from that to a wholly different design concept is going to take a long time. So if you've gone on one end of the spectrum and there's clearly another design on the other end of the spectrum, you're going to end up with some convergence somewhere in the middle, uh, much like we're going to see over the next two years um, leading up to this regulation change. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the cycle will change because of the um, the, the design scope that will be available to the, the, the designers anyway. Um, you know, that, that design scope is being narrowed by these new regulations, or that's the, the, certainly the outlook that I'm seeing with the amount of spec parts, et cetera, that we're going to have on the car. So I think we're going to see a sort of narrowing down to about a, a two-year window, I would say. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, and just to uh, – what was the other follow-up that I had? Mm. Well, we'll just skip that and move on because it has gone away from me in our fascinating discussion. So the next thing that I would like to talk about would be that, well, this was interesting. I don't know. Did you catch this? That Mercedes, after the um, latest virtual safety car debacle for uh, Lewis, has is going to update his wheel information shown on it. Yes, I did catch that. And Lewis was actually making reference to this in the race itself on the radio he came over and said that he, you know it wasn't he wasn't happy with what was going on he realized that he'd lost a massive amount of time uh, to Bottas with the the delta that had been created by the safety car uh, sorry virtual safety car um, and we all know that there are ways in which that you can sort of make and lose time with a virtual safety car and clearly Hamilton realized that he was losing this time to Bottas and it was becoming larger and larger and he couldn't make that time up because he'd already perhaps lost it uh, at the beginning of the virtual safety car. And the biggest problem with a virtual safety car, and I think this was mentioned in commentary, is that it depends on where you are out on the circuit that you know you, you can really start to lose out in the mini loops. You know, if you're on the, the back straight down in, in Baku, for argument's sake, um, compared to somebody who's in the castle section, the 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 loss of time is so much larger because you can't cover that ground so you know i think the virtual safety car has its plus and negatives um and and perhaps that's again something that the fia even may have to look at um at certain specific tracks in order to to try to to make that work a little bit better as well yeah someone's always going to lose out i mean i know even in endurance car racing where you have like a code 60 or a code 80 or maybe even a code 100 at a certain point, uh, and especially I would think with these cars, uh, code 60 isn't really going to work because the, um, because in fact the, the cars won't stay operable at that slow a temperature around a whole lap. Yeah, and I think that's partly where we may have gone wrong with Baku as well, because we know about the tire temperature issues that everybody was facing. And if you suddenly you're under a virtual safety car losing a lot of tire temperature, there is a potential that you've then sort of fallen out of your operating window and suddenly find that the car isn't working as you would expect it to. So you're immediately going to lose lap time there as well. Okay, so we have avoided talking about tires, but let's start talking about tires. There's a wonderful article in Automotor Unsport, um, and Toby in the Slack group helpfully translated a bunch of points from it, and some of which I think we'll get to later. But the thing that I wanted to ask about most was the accusation, I guess, or a statement was made that a lot of the changes Pirelli had made for this season were down to um, marketing in the sense that they were unhappy with the image of blistered tires at the end of every race. And as a result, 
it seems like they may have handed an advantage to Mercedes while they were at it. Yeah. Okay. So if we think about the appearance that Pirelli have um, outside of Formula One, let's say they, they, you know, they're they're representing themselves. They are a partner, a sponsor. Um, uh, you know, but they're essentially a company that is wanting to sell tires. I have a set of Pirellis on my road car, let's say. Um, so, you know, they have to have a decent public image in order that they continue to sell their products. Now, if they're ha- having situations where their tires are blistering or, you know, the, the, there's out, the teams are outspoken against them in certain ways, then, you know, they're, they're, it's problematic for them. Um, so, yeah, they did make changes in order to deal with that situation. And the reason that, that, that they've gone down the route they have is because they were trying to limit the amount of one-stop races that we're having, which has been, you know, that their kind of mantra since they entered the sport. They've been trying to increase the amount of pit stops that happen. Um, unfortunately, the teams want to go in the opposite direction and they want to make the tyres last. So they'll, they'll run these huge stints which the tyres aren't really supposed to do, and you end up with the tyres looking a little worse for wear at the end of a stint, which is obviously against the sort of PR side of things that they want. And that's why they, they went down this route and, and made those uh, those changes for 2019. All right. And given that, uh, we, we, have seen, um, we have seen the teams that were most disadvantaged already starting to make some changes in regards to keeping the temperature up. But the the fall off seems to be fairly huge if you get out of that window and and just um correct me i mean which teams exactly have made updates and how successful have they been well i think all the teams have made updates it's and including the likes of mercedes everybody seems to think that mercedes have suddenly stumbled on the the holy grail because their car operates really well with these pirelli tires and i don't think that's the case at all mercedes are a very reactive team they make very good decisions in terms of their development and their setup parameters. And they're able to find uh, performance um, much more easily than some of the other teams because of the amount of resource that they have available to them. Uh, And primarily data. You know, we only have to think about how much mileage they've done historically since the hybrid regulations and understanding this particular tyre set. So um, in terms of updates... I don't think there's any one team that has perhaps worn out over the other because they're all advancing towards a point whereby uh, they're they're waiting for the big update in Barcelona, let's say, uh, and for the improvements that are going to come there. Yeah, sorry, I say updates, and I wasn't referencing, I was referencing specifically to help with the tyre temperatures. I mean, I know, I think it was Ferrari and Haas had made some effort at that, and I was just curious, were there other teams aimed specifically at that? Not not as specific as Ferrari and Haas, and that's obviously because they share some commonality in terms of the, their uh, products, let's say, that are run on the car, the brake ducts, etc., um, which have the impact of being able to harness the tyre the, the temperatures themselves as well. Um, I think the biggest advantage that teams are going to have found, though, is through setup um, and understanding how to make the tyres work. I think the fundamental problem that the, the teams are having with the tyres is that the the, the tread obviously being um, a, a lesser gauge. So that means that it's almost like they've already done some distance on the old tyres that's opened up the surface of the tyre. So you have less rubber to be able to work with effectively, which means that you lose heat. And you lose heat on the surface, but it doesn't correspond to what's happening inside the core of the tyre. Now, being able to get those two temperatures to react 
in correlation with one another is what's most important to being able to get the stint length that you want and also get the direct performance when you need it. And so I think that's where teams are really struggling is getting this cohesive uh, tyre temperature of the carcass itself and the, the tread platform. Okay, and now this does bring up a question that I want to ask is I have always thought of the tyre having a point of friction, its contact patch, working against the asphalt, generating energy and heat that then will bleed into the carcass or the core of the tire. If we think about a surface and a core, maybe that's easier terminology to follow. And so I've always thought of that as being the only point of friction. But is there also a secondary point of friction between the core of the tire and the tread that's laid on top of it, even if there's not movement, do we have sort of a secondary layer of energy um, creation happening there? And does the flex of the sidewall play any part into putting energy in the tire at all? Or is that mainly an aerodynamic issue for the teams to solve? Okay, so it is an aerodynamic issue uh, for them to solve. Um, but from a tire temperature point of view, that is what is going to heat what you've just mentioned as the core of the tire. Um, the surface is all to do with the way in which the, the tire is, the, it, how it interacts with the asphalt effectively. And that is where most of the surface temperature is created, not all of it. But you have to remember that these tires aren't just made up of one particular, it's not just a piece of rubber. You know, they are, uh, there are multiple parts to the way that they work. Um, you know, the belts is what you you would go out and research is the actual belts of the tyre. Um, so you have many different aspects to the tyre and the way that all those structures interact with one another, flex, deformation, that is what causes this sort of thermal reaction between the core of the tyre and the surface of the tyre. And if those two don't marry up, then you have somewhat of a problem. The other issue as well is, as we know, the tyre blanket temperatures that they're allowed to use before the the tyres go on the car have also changed for this year. Um, So we have cooler temperatures at the rear of the car, which is making life difficult for um, teams in order that they can't really get the operating temperature at front and rear to work either. And I think that's the problem that Haas are having this year is that they can't understand what is happening at the front of the car and then why they have this yo-yo effect uh, between the front and rear performance. So I think as, this, as the season goes on and they start to try to work these these scenarios out, I think that's when performance will start to be unlocked for a lot of teams. Um, and that's been really a, a, an underground battle that people don't tend to, to notice too much since Pirelli have really been in the sport. All right. Well, that is fascinating. And that kind of brings up our mini Barcelona preview, which may be somewhat tire biased. But I just I'd had these thoughts. I mean, when we were at Barcelona for testing, it was cold. And yet we saw Ferrari, uh, who we can sort of discount because we know Mercedes didn't have exactly their full package there. And we certainly saw Haas being amazingly fast around that circuit. And so I went and I looked up the Pirelli numbers for grip and abrasion um, from the start of the season. For Australia, the grip was one and the abrasion was three. Uh, For Bahrain, it was grip four, abrasion five. For China, it was grip three, abrasion three. And for Azerbaijan, it was grip two, abrasion one. For Barcelona, the numbers I have are grip four, abrasion two. And the other thing that I think plays into it is, for the most part, 
uh, sometimes due to chance, sometimes due to weather, it seems like temperatures at circuits, and specifically the track temperatures, have been kind of low this season. But getting back to Barcelona, if you're a Ferrari or a Haas fan, is there is it time to maybe put a little bit of hope back into your basket before the race? Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Because, you know, the teams are so used to going to Barcelona. Um, well, at least they are for this year, because as we know, the, the Barcelona might not be on the schedule going forward. Um, but the thing with Barcelona is, is that it has recently been resurfaced. Was it two years ago that they resurfaced Barcelona? So that will have an impact on the asphalt in terms of um, the, the amount of grip that it's prepared to give up, the abrasion, as you've just mentioned, which Pirelli are obviously giving markers out. But those are factors that will change based on how much the circuit is used, and especially so when you have a circuit that is more recently uh, resurfaced because obviously it, it starts to wear more quickly um, in the opening phases. So... Uh, I do hold more hope out for um, Ferrari and Haas at Barcelona, but I don't think it's intrinsically linked to just the fact that they were good there in pre-season testing. I think it's more to do with the fact that we might start to see the difference between what their car was at the start of the year to where they have suddenly learned how to deal with the problems they're having when they, they face them at Barcelona. Okay, and one more question in thinking about it, the an important thing I left out is that in Barcelona, you don't, aside from the front straight, you don't really have these incredibly long straights and you don't have the same amount of time between turns where you're putting energy into the tires. And do you see that maybe working to the advantage of the teams that are based on the Ferrari philosophy? Possibly. Um when we talk about the Ferrari philosophy, I take it you mean their unloaded front wing rather than the loaded front wing we see from Mercedes and Red Bull. Yeah, I, I, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Just, I mean, because Haas buys a lot of parts from them, so their philosophy will be in line with that, even though their front wing doesn't match. I'm thinking the Ferrari teams in particular seem to have struggled, and Red Bull to a certain extent, with tire temperatures. And I just wonder if the teams that have been struggling will now maybe have a bit of an advantage in a circuit that puts more energy into the tires just based on its actual layoff, even accepting the asphalt characteristics. Yeah, I, I do think it's important as well, though, to think about what we've mentioned earlier about the, the front and rear tire temperatures being different this year from the get-go. So 100 degrees at the front, 80 at the rear, if I remember correctly, um, which obviously has an impact on the way in which that those tyres cycle uh, through their, their, their heat as they go out onto the circuit. Um, and obviously with the way in which the, the the aero regulations have changed for this year in terms of the amount of drag that's on the cars, in terms of their overall coefficient, which is their lift versus drag um, ratio, um, I, I think we're seeing that the, the front wing um, uh, has brought on some unintended consequences for some of the teams in terms of the way that they operate the front tyre. And I think that what they're finding is that they're perhaps loading too much on the front end of the car uh, and we're overheating the front end, which is then meaning that the rear ends are not quite uh, at the, the temperature that would be optimum. Uh, and then it just causes this really imbalanced sort of grip level for the car. And for me, that's where... Perhaps Haas are, are having the biggest issue, but as you mentioned, other teams are also having an issue. Um, there are certainly other teams that are trying very interesting solutions to overcome some of these problems. The likes of Red Bull with their very innovative front suspension setup, 
um, not only from an aerodynamic perspective, but also kinematically, uh, they're, they're going to have some uh, advantages with what they're trying to do. Um, and yeah, I just think as we go through this season, we're going to see teams suddenly unlock a lot of performance because they'll suddenly fumble on this moment where they go, ah, this is how we, we work our car with this particular set of circumstances. Right. Well, I had wanted to mention um, before we get to your predictions for Barcelona and who you think will do well and who won't, that I had gone back and looked at the improvement in qualifying times in Azerbaijan, which is a particular example because the temperature was cool to begin with and due to the delays dropped almost 13 degrees C. It was in the track temperatures were in the 20s by time Mercedes set its winning lap time. And the improvement on a percentage basis was close to 3%, I think, for Hamilton which is more than he did at Singapore last year and far outside what we were regularly seeing from them, which is in the 1.6 to around the 1.6, 1.7 range. And it just seems to make the point again, how temperature dependent and how weather dependent these tires seem to be. Do they have a narrower window than we've seen with previous years or is Pirelli just bringing the wrong compound altogether, given what's happening. I mean, maybe it's just too far out to be able to to do that. Okay, so I think firstly, the thing we have to remember is that they picked these compounds quite some time ago. Um, so their predictions are obviously based on, on a, a, a historical um, reference to that particular circuit. And as you say, because of the temperatures um, being relatively low compared to what we would expect, I think there is some of that coming into play. Um, I also think that certain teams are, are, are making bigger leaps um, in terms of finding performance, Mercedes p- particularly in that case. And as you've just pointed out, Singapore was the eureka moment for Mercedes last year with their uh, tyre operating window and setup. You know, we know they brought in that new rear uh, wheel set up the trick one that they bought to spa that it had time trying to get that to work for them and just couldn't unlock it and then all of a sudden they had that moment in singapore where it just came to them and they you know hamilton produced a, an astonishing lap but as you say his improvement rate uh for for baku was actually larger than that delta so that goes to prove to me that there is um an inherent amount of performance to be found from the tires themselves um, if you can unlock that performance. Yeah, and I think um, uh, it was either Vettel or Bonato who's, Bonato who said that he's not sure that he thinks Mercedes entirely understands why they get that performance out of the tires from time to time. But given all those impossible to parse variables, what are you thinking for Barcelona? Uh, who do you see doing well there? And and do you see Ferrari coming good? That's my question, really. I do see Ferrari coming good, um, but historically we've also seen Red Bull do quite well around there as well. And I'm really impressed with Red Bull in terms of their relationship with Honda thus far as well. Uh, the way that you know the, the two have kind of interacted, they've been getting le- at least the same level of performance that they were getting with Renault, which to me proves that that partnership is really working because we only have to look at what uh, Honda did with McLaren. Um, and and it, and it was a shambles. So um, the whole partnership with Red Bull has been a, a really good one so far. So you know you can't go too much further away from saying Mercedes because, as we've just mentioned, they they just seem to be able to pull something out of the bag every single time. 
And if their latest video is anything to go by, they've got some sandbags behind them in that, that video. So I think that just alludes to uh, where they are actually at at the moment in terms of performance. Um, but yeah, Ferrari, I do see them coming, coming good. And I do think they will have an update on the car that should help them in terms of the uh, problems that they're having with the tyres, whether that be from a suspension point of view, because as both me and yourself noticed, they did have to revert to an older suspension specification going into the start of the season. And that is clearly going to have had a massive impact on the way in which that they're able to operate the platform of the car from an aerodynamic point of view, which then brings us back to their tyre issues. So, yeah, I, I do see a, a big performance uh, being handed out to to some of the teams going going into Barcelona, but it just depends on where that pecking order ends up coming out. Yeah. Okay. And so, if we're talking um, if we're talking drivers, then do you think this is a Leclerc circuit, or do you think it's a Vettel circuit? Well, to be fair, I would pin my money on Leclerc every track this season because Vettel just doesn't seem to have the confidence with this particular car. Um, he seems to struggle with a car that is not planted at the rear. Uh, I had this problem against Weber. I uh, had the problem against Ricardo, and we've come into another rule set where the rules have changed and he's having another problem against another teammate. But in all of those times that he's had those problems, he's always managed to find a way to drive around them or the car development has ended up going in, in his direction. So he will come good at some point, but I just think from a psychological point of view, at least, Leclerc just definitely has the edge over Vettel at this stage. Um, it just depends on how that fits with the team themselves, because as we know, they do tend to favour Vettel and have suggested they will do so Do so uh, if they need to. All right. Well, I have a theory is that he tends to do well on circuits that had F2 races on them. I think Vettel's biggest advantage are on the circuits that he's only done as a Formula One driver. And I'm pretty sure F2 races in uh, Montmelo. Yes. So I'm, I, I would have to lean that way. And the Botas and Hamilton uh, debate is still kind of open. I think I would lean Hamilton in this instance. But I'm curious, uh, based on your observations, what you think. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
I'm very impressed with Botas, Botas, whoever you want to say uh, he, he's going this season. He's clearly had his porridge. Um, he, he's clearly motive, motivated himself at the start of the season by going off and doing uh, the Nico Rosberg um, school of hard knocks training uh, to try to, to get an advantage over Hamilton. But uh, the problem I have with uh, a driver like Valtteri and Rosberg that preceded him is the fact that Hamilton is able to drag performance throughout the course of a whole season. And so he may be, be behind at this stage, but he's, he's learning things at a rapid rate um, and perhaps things that aren't transferable to another driver. And I think that's perhaps where he wins out over the course of a season because he continuously learns and develops his skill set in order to get the best from the car. Um, but I do think we are definitely seeing a better version of uh, Valtteri this season. Okay, and real quick before we move on, uh, I say real quick, we sort of turn this from news into tech. It's just all become a big melange, a big mess, but I hopefully a vaguely entertaining one. Before we move on, uh, let's talk about the midfield real quick. Uh, we've seen Racing Point with some big updates and looking fast. Haas was incredibly quick here in testing and I think could still be argued to be at least over one lap maybe the class of the field. Will they be able to put race pace together? And then Renault has been compared to McLaren, especially kind of disappointing as if they've gone down the wrong path and are trying to walk it back. Do we have, do you have a favorite here? What do you think might, might happen? Uh, I'm very impressed with McLaren. Um, they, they've kind of got over some of their ills of the last few years, let's say. Um, their chassis for, is much better this year. Their integration of the power unit into this year's car is much better. Um, it should have been better last year, but it clearly wasn't. It clearly isn't um, going to win any races this year, uh, but it might win some of the midfield battle races um, purely because they, they seem to be able to dial the car in much better than those around them. And then going to Renault, obviously we have uh, the, their chassis just doesn't appear to have uh, the traits that are necessary for for their drivers to be able to exude confidence with the car. I think Baku is a bit of an outlier because I think Nico Hulkenberg absolutely hates that circuit because he didn't finish the first two races there um, and he didn't do very well this race either. So, uh, And obviously, Ricardo made the mistake of backing into Kiv- Kvyat. Um, but their car overall, I, d- I don't think he, he's exceptionally... Um, well planted and that that's one of their biggest issues um Haas again as you say Barcelona they were very good in winter testing so hopefully they can transfer that across to to uh to the, this uh, particular race going forward as well all right so let's move on to the technical section of the show and for those of you who are new listeners I will say you know you might have thought what you just heard was technical talk, but no, 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 no. This is actually the bit where we get really down and dirty into the weeds and cracks and crevices of what happens underneath and behind the scenes in Formula One. And I wanted to start out with, since we were talking about it already, the difference in the brake duct updates between Ferrari and Haas that were ostensibly, and to my knowledge, brought on solely to help deal and stabilize tire temperatures during race stints. Yeah, I mean, for for a long time now, teams have been using the brake ducts in order to transfer the energy created under braking. So you, you're obviously creating energy in the disc uh, through friction with, with the, the pads. Um, 
you're creating energy there that is then transferred into the brake drum itself. And the brake drum then heats up and that transfers energy into the wheel rim, which creates temperature in the core of the tyre. So if you can manage those things by channeling airflow through the brake drum, etc., then obviously you can try to improve your your tyre temperature window. Uh, And what we're starting to see is some of the teams make a concerted effort in order to change the way in which that that temperature is transferred in order that they get better tyre performance, not only over one lap, but also over the the course of a race. Okay. Now, as I understand it, uh, Ferrari replaced both their front and rear brake ducts and Haas only replaced their front brake ducts. Why is that? And do you think Haas may have made a mistake and not going for all four? Or is it just a resource thing? They haven't had time to figure out what they need to do. Well, they may not have um, asked for the cut, that those particular parts from Ferrari. We obviously don't don't know the, the facts at hand. They may have had them and decided not to run them. Um, but it goes back to what I was saying about the front and rear tyre temperatures being having a different starting point from the blankets. And I think that's why we saw uh, Ferrari making changes, both front and rear, in order to try to stabilise uh, the temperatures that, that I've just mentioned uh, through transference. Uh, and obviously Haas perhaps think that they've got a major pro- more of a major problem, let's say, on the front end of the car. And perhaps that's why we saw them only change the front brake ducts and try to re- retain whatever heat they were creating at the rear of the car with the old star brake ducts. So it's just a balancing act at the end of the day. Uh, you can only have so many parts. There's only so much time in free practice to try these things out. And some of the sessions aren't exactly representative in terms of the temperatures of the, the track as well. So... It's all a bit of a, a, a data minefield, let's say, where the teams have to take all of this data, accept their losses at that particular circuit, and then go back to the factory afterwards and try to crunch the numbers and make improvements going forward. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. Let's talk now about front wings, possibly the inspiration for the title of the show. Uh, we saw it in testing, and we have seen, as you mentioned, a Big difference in front wing philosophy between Ferrari and Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull. And we've seen some Mercedes updates that looked to me like they were moving, not entirely, not even halfway, but some small way towards incorporating the some of what philosophy, uh, some of what Ferrari claims to have discovered. Uh so where are we with that? Uh, where are we with that, with the two front wings, with that philosophy? Do we see Ferrari moving m- towards the Mercedes side a little bit? Because you would think somewhere in the center there would be convergence where you would have optimal performance, even if it's on different sides of a 50-50 line. Or has it really just been so far Mercedes having the resource to do the development, to do the testing and, and, and make the parts and get them on the car? I think the biggest thing that we have to think about here is is that with the new set of regulations, which has taken away the sort of cascade elements, which are the the upper flaps that most people would have seen on the old specification front front wings, the canards, which are the sort of flow diverting uh, elements that sit on the end plates, um, and many of the other bits of furniture that are now gone and we cannot have uh, for 2019 going onwards. Um, without those in place, we've we've kind of pared down the amount of um, real estate that the teams have to operate with. So you can only do so many things with the front wing now, is, is basically what I'm saying. Um, so how you go about that is going to 
decide not only what performance you get from the front wing, but also the performance of how you deal with the tyre wake that's created behind the, the, the front wing and also the performance of the, the rear of the car, the floor and the diffuser uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it's a myriad of problems that you encounter by trying to make changes to your overall design philosophy. So to go from one end of the spectrum where Ferrari sit now to then go, I'm going for a loaded front wing like the Red Bull or Mercedes option it is, is a massive leap, you know, and it's something that can't just be the making of a moment because although you can bolt that front wing on, you're not only changing the, the design construct for the front wing, you're changing things that happen downstream. And the design of these cars is like a daisy chain. One piece of airflow, it hits a part of the car and that you try to make it then do something else a little bit further down so that you gain you know, sort of micro improvements all the way down the line of the car. And so I think what, as you say, is we're seeing a convergence towards the middle. Um, and for the likes of Mercedes, it's much easier to do that because they are in a, they are in a situation where their design permits them to be able to make this graduated sort of slope towards the end plate that we've seen them starting to do. Uh, and Red Bull actually did in Baku as well, but, by the way. Um, but the likes of Ferrari... Uh, Toro Rosso and Sauber, who have, sorry, Alfa Romeo, who have these uh, unloaded front wings where their flaps sort of arch down excessively towards the end plate, mean that to change that philosophy entirely means almost saying we are wrong and we are going to change to the Mercedes end of the spectrum. So it's a very difficult task for, for Ferrari, I think, to, to make that leap back towards the Mercedes end of the spectrum. Okay, and that actually neatly answers a question that Chris Harris in the chat room had, which was how baked in are the front wings? And it seems like the Mercedes-style front wings, which are run amongst others by Haas and by Red Bull, have a little more room for play and for compromise than do the ones run by Ferrari and Alfa Romeo. Um and I've seen also it characterizes sort of outwash versus um, upwash. And it and am I right in assuming that the Mercedes style is upwash and that the Ferrari style is outwash, or have I got that backwards? No, you, you kind of got it there. Um, they're both doing the, the same uh, thing. They're, they're trying to do the same sort of thing. Uh, and the, one of the things that we're having to think about in the regard of how the flaps meet with the end plate is what happens when those two pressure gradients collide you create a vortex so they're creating very different vortices Um, in terms of the ferrari they've tried to sort of let's say that they're trying to create a smaller vortex at the tip because of the way that the the flap will will come down towards the end plate. They're trying to minimise the tip vortex, whereas the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull are trying to increase the size of the vortex by staying with the the loaded style of front wing. Now, as you mentioned, the reason that people are talking about upwash and outwash is that all of the teams are trying to create outwash because they wanted to do that from the get-go with the old regulations, which they now can't do because they don't have all the furniture. They want to take the airflow that's coming and hitting the front tyre front tire head-on, and they want to move it outboard because then it doesn't impact the flow behind at, at, at the, of the floor. They want to move that wake outboard, and it improves performance of the car in its entirety. But what also you have to consider is that there's some airflow that, that's triggered above this, 
um, the top end of the, the wheel wake that's obviously disturbing the flow at the back of the car around the rear wing and, and the rear tyre. And obviously the, the design philosophy that we've seen from the likes of Red Bull and, and Mercedes tend to deal with that a little bit more expansively than the, the other teams at the other end of the spectrum. Um, but as I say, it's, it, it's all about trying to manage flow not only the, uh, directly at that front wing, but also what you do downstream. So you're always going to hit a compromise. You're always going to have a problem one way or the other because you, you no longer have a massive amount of tools at your disposal. Okay. Uh, I think that makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, and as we move on, I did have a brief question as I'm sitting here looking at a chart about the working ranges of the tires. And what I see is that the soft tire in Azerbaijan has a lower working range, 90 to 120 C, than the medium tire, which is 105 to 135. And yet on Ferrari, ostensibly struggling to keep temperatures in the tires, that the medium tire worked better than the soft tire. And I begin to wonder, as I look at even the softer tires, is your re- which have even lower ranges, why is it necessarily that the lower range doesn't always work uh, for teams that have a hard time keeping the temperature high enough? Perhaps because of just the way that their car operates, um, the way that it forces energy into the tyre. Um, because those those optimum working ranges, obviously there's a there's a sweet spot within there. You know, you're just mentioning there 105 degrees to, uh, was it 120 degrees for the medium tyre? 135, so yeah. Something like that, but you've got a sort of 15 to 20 degree uh, operating range to work within. And it's a bit of a Goldilocks thing. You know, you're always searching for the, the porridge that's the hottest, the coldest. Now there's one right in the middle. So there's there's a window right in the middle there that still operates at, at a better performance window for your car, uh, for that particular car. Um and I think that's where a lot of the teams may be struggling because they're, they're sort of yo-yoing between these uh, operating windows uh, and they're not quite finding the sweet spot all of the time and then the problem on top of that is that they find it and then it goes away because of, of a set of circumstances that's beyond their control uh, fuel level disappearing um, track temperature cooling down you know there's a myriad of problems that people aren't perhaps aware of that uh, the driver is trying to accommodate whilst the, the everything on the car is changing for him uh, and tires are such a difficult problem for the type, for the driver to try to to manage um uh, along with everything else that he has to manage from a power unit perspective um and so on and so forth in terms of strategy and, and everything that he's having to think about what on the hoof let's say um so yeah, tire temperatures, as we know, are a massive, massive factor. And if you can't find that sweet spot, then you really are going to struggle for performance. Okay, so it's more down to where the sweet spot of a specific tire is rather than its working range overall. Yeah, and, and, and as I say, that could be different for every single car because you have a, a different set of parameters. Every car is different. If we were talking about a spec series where all the cars are, are the same, we'd then be narrowed down to just setup that would cause that that difference or driving style that would cause that difference. But here we're talking about 10 prototype cars that, that are changing from one race to the next. So the driver always has a moving reference point as well. You know, he, he never understands the car from one race to the next because it's always in flux. Um, and that changes dependent on so many different parameters. 
Wow, that's actually kind of profound to think about it that way because it hadn't really crossed my mind, but you're completely correct and just increases the appreciation you have to have for the job that they do. Uh, given that, let's talk about Honda for a little bit. As you mentioned earlier, their partnership with Red Bull seems to be working. And have I mistaken the fact that Red Bull might have a B-spec chassis in the works for their now bright, shiny, fun new toy? Yeah, I mean, understandably, um, Red Bull went into this relationship with open eyes. They knew that this was sort of make or break for them within this era of Formula One um, because there's no chance that Mercedes are going to supply them with an engine unless they're forced to and nor a Ferrari. So that leaves them with two choices and they've already burned the bridge back to Renault. So it's Honda or bust in reality, or they've got to find a new partner that is going to build an engine for them. And the obvious choice is to build a partnership with Honda that is going to be successful and push resource uh, towards Honda from their, their side and also find partners that will work both with them as well. But as you say, the thing that I think is interesting from Red Bull is that they've admitted that their chassis is perhaps not optimum um, in terms of working with the Honda power unit. So they're going to start to make changes to that as well uh, to try to come in line with how they can get the best from their chassis side of things to marry up with, with the Honda. And now you say that, and I just wonder because... It's not unknown for Red Bull to be, I hate to use the word lazy, but they don't always show up with their best work on the first day of testing and go from there. We've, we've seen it in the past where they will come in a halfway, a third of the way through a season with a massive raft of updates and suddenly bolt on a lot of performance. In fact, you could argue you saw it last year, certainly with Verstappen's performance. And so is this a case of, since Honda was a little bit of an unknown for them, do you think just rather than spending time designing something that wouldn't work, they just sort of did a minimum job, looked at what the parameters they had once things were underway and have now been furiously at work. Now they have a distinct direction to follow. I think that's part of the the scenario we're looking at, but I also think it's partly to do with the fact that they just, um, they just wanted to get in there with, with Honda, uh, build the best thing that they could to get going, and, and then realise that, hang on a minute, this, this power unit is actually better than the Renault that we had in the past. So our, our chassis was outperforming the ranks of the Renault, let's say. Um, they were making up time based on their chassis. And now they're in a situation where they have a better power unit to work with. Uh, and they now need to be able to, to to make a chassis that is obviously optimum to the level of performance they're getting from the, the Honda power unit. So, as you say, they have started out slow in the past. 2017 was perhaps uh, a really big signal of that because they came with a very beige car for 2017 because they thought they were going to be able to run this trick suspension that got banned. Um, and then they had to come back with huge aero updates to try to make up for, for the problems that they'd created by having a, a much more relaxed aero philosophy. Uh, and I think that we're in a similar situation to that. They've perhaps not gone so aggressive on the downforce levels because they thought that they needed less drag on the car um, to make up for the, the power unit deficit that they thought they would have with Honda. And clearly they're, they're, they're finding that they were mistaken about that and they can suddenly decide to try and take some more advantage from the arrow side of things. All right. Well, as time starts to tick down and I look over the vast list of things I have not yet asked you about, um, 
I see that we have a clutch change for next year and that we are also seeing some new um, spec part tenders for 2021. So just outline for us what difference will the new clutch regulations make for next year? And are you getting any hints from the spec parts, the tenders that are being put out about where the shape of 2021 might really be headed? Well, I think that I won't cover the clutch thing because I think that's something that perhaps I need more information to make it more relevant um, to hand. I think the 2021 regulation thing is more important in in as much as that um, we're in a situation where we're seeing a slide towards some more specification parts. And this is all to do with um, budgetary uh, reasoning, from my my opinion. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to make it easier to build parts of the chassis, let's say, uh, by having commonality with parts. And I don't think there's any real problem with that as long as um, the, the the parts have been identified correctly. Because what they're saying is that they're taking parts that don't add performance to the car. Now, every part, in my opinion, adds performance, not only directly, but it's the indirect performance that can be gained by manufacturing your own parts. We only have to look at things like the brake ducts um, that each of the teams run independently of one another to realise that they have an impact on not only the the airflow that they see directly, but also how it daisy chains to the other parts on the car. And of course, obviously, teams will still be able to gain performance from these non-specification parts. But I do think that it's a dangerous step towards having a spec series. Um, there's clearly not going to be that problem for Formula One for a very long time. But the problem that we have is that we're trying to dilute the technical and engineering side of the sport to encourage the entertainment level of the sport. And unfortunately, the entertainment level of the sport is driven by the engineering side because of the commercial interest that we have within the sport. The likes of Petronas, who sponsor um, and work with Mercedes, Shell, who work with Ferrari, um, you know, and many Mal who work with with everybody on pistons, and you know, it, you know, all these partners that work with the teams are there for a commercial reason. And if you suddenly take a lot of that away in order to make it more specification orientated, I think you then start to take away some of the fundamental parts of the commercial act- aspect of the sport as well. So it'll be fascinating to see how the FIA and Formula One management are able to sort of work on that basis and and make it actually work as as part of the whole of the sport. Yeah, well, it does seem like what they want to do is spec parts that don't contribute a lot to the engineering spectacle and the racing spectacle. And I mean, certainly, if you're going to talk about things like gears and stuff like that, that are almost spec parts anyway, because there's only one or two suppliers for the entire grid. Uh, so in that sense, I, I understand their efforts, but I agree at the end of the day, it's a concern because what makes Formula One special is that it is not a spec series and you don't want to take away too many tools um, in in a search for better racing. So let's jump to a listener question that relates to that. And it's our friend MG5904, who's afraid of looking naive, but he is concerned with the improvement and making it easier to follow, could we be in in a position of going the wrong way, as in allowing too much DRS, making it too easy to pass? I mean, is there 
a balance that needs to be hit between I can put my nose on your gearbox like in Formula E and the uh, O in a city in a city circuit. I need eight seconds in front of me in order to get a clean qualifying lap. And on top of that, he'd like to know. And this is this also intrigues me. Given the teams having issues with Pirelli tires, what are the odds that we will see them try to make some changes this season as they did in that infamous Red Bull season when the tires all exploded at Silverstone? Okay, so firstly, I think it's important to actually remember that the performance of the tires are actually intrinsically linked to following another car as well because you are then changing the aero load on the trailing car. So you're going to change how much performance you get and how much temperature you get in the tyres um, of the trailing car by following another. So not only are you in their wake and you're ingesting that hot air into your power unit and destroying uh, your power unit's uh, life uh, and obviously its performance, you're also changing the, the dynamics of the tyres and also the aerodynamic profile. So I think you're always going to struggle with a myriad of problems in terms of um, overtaking, especially as I've mentioned, these cars are not the same as one another and never will be because they are prototypes. Um, in terms of the difference between DRS and not having DRS, I think DRS is a it's one of those things where we need it. Unfortunately, we do need it in Formula One in order to to make the difference because unfortunately we're in a position where um, we can't get close enough racing in order to to facilitate not having it in place. However, how it works is perhaps the, the problem that, that we have. All right. And should Formula One decide to adopt movable aerodynamics, which frankly they should have done some many years ago, because that would be incredibly road relevant, uh, unless they do that, then I think we are stuck with DRS. Uh, both Josh Geek and Toby had some Ferrari questions, which I think we've addressed for the most part. But Toby did have uh, part of his question. Is it the balance um, in the balance between front and rear? Is it too little rear or is it too much front that is impacting Vettel more? In other words, are they tuning the rear down to match the front? Or are they not able to load the rear up enough to keep him happy? And that is something I don't know the answer to, so I'm going to ask you right now. From my perspective, what I understand, they don't have enough load on the front end. And that's why they're struggling with the tyre temperatures as well as obviously everything else that's going on because they can't load the front end enough. And as we've talked about, it's about how much wing that you give up in terms of how much wing is actually for direct downforce to balance the car versus how much is there to, to push airflow out and around the car. All right. And the last question comes from Twitter and Kevin Lee who would like very much to know why Mercedes narrow nose, low rake solution is so unpopular across the grid. Nobody runs their car that low that way. So he'd like to know, given Mercedes success, what are the negatives and why do you think no one else has gone this direction? Well, I think you would have to look at another team on the grid as to why everybody's gone in a different direction. And that's Red Bull. Everybody sort of adopted the Red Bull solution because that's what Adrian Newey was doing. That was what was successful from 2009 onwards. So everybody sort of gravitated into that direction because they felt that it was the best solution in order to get the most uh, amount of performance from a car over a, a longer period of time. And the thing with the, the high rake philosophy, as we know, is that there's more potential to get downforce from the rear end of the car because you are exposing uh, the diffuser to, to a larger volume. 
But the problem that you have, which as we've talked about in the past as well, is the deformation of the tyres, which causes this tyre squirt wake to, to enter the diffuser and, and basically robs the diffuser of performance. Red Bull have always been very good at being able to create um, some aerodynamic effects that limit that issue, and other teams have struggled with it, whereas Mercedes got, have gone the other end of the spectrum, as we know we've talked about spectrum, the end of the, each end of the spectrum with the front wings. Mercedes at the other end of the spectrum with a very low-rake philosophy because they know that for them, over the, the course of their car, they can get the best from the diffuser volume by having that low rate philosophy, because then they have to deal with less turbulence um, that's created and, and generated into the diffuser that robs performance. So it, it, it's a philosophy point of view. And as I say, I think most teams gravitated towards the high rake philosophy because it seemed to give the most performance when they put it in the tunnel versus the low rake. Um, and because Red Bull had really uh, taken advantage of it for such a long time. All right, and that does remind me that I believe McLaren did run low rake up until uh, 2012 or 2013, and it wasn't until they switched to the new power units that they also switched aerodynamics, and that came along with the acquisition of one of Red Bull's former aerodynamicists, correct? Yes, Peter Pedromo moved from Red Bull to um, McLaren, and at the same time, their front wing philosophy changed from a very flat design to the sort of uh, design that Red Bull were running at the time. And they then started to move to the the higher rake philosophy. So I think that was a product of Pedromo moving uh, from one team to another. All right, then. So it is time for us, sadly, to go. Though I realize we could speak for hours more about all things Formula One. We will do this again. But before we do, tell us, what are you up to? Where should we look for you? What do you want to plug? Okay, well, the best place to find me as usual is over on Twitter, um, which obviously follow me as Summers F1. You can go over to my blog, which is summersf1.co.uk. And I'm still working with motorsport.com. And, and uh, we have a big uh, amount of features coming up shortly on some historical stuff because Piola, this year, it will be his 50th year in the sport at Monaco. He will have done 50 years covering uh, Formula One, which is an amazing feat for for anybody within the sport, and, and so we're, we're going to have a collection of, of great articles to cover that. All right, and don't forget if you want to take a really deep dive into Summers' uh, thoughts, hit up his website at summersf1.co.uk, where you can also find my race reviews of the Formula One races, and look for and missed Apex our upcoming karting video from the latest karting episodes that was done i believe that's going to be out in the next week or so don't hold me to it if i am wrong this is third hand information we understand oh wait yes we understand that it might be coming out soon and as for me i'm at matt pt55 on the twitters come talk to me tell me what you think tell me what i've done wrong this time because everybody else in my life seems perfectly happy to do so and remember Chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Tech Time. Yeah. Great show, man. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.